You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, Deputy Newsletter Editor here at the Washington Post. From coronavirus to the culture wars, America's students have been sitting in the front seat this year as major disputes over how to approach education have played out both in classrooms and in politics. Here to discuss these hot button topics today, we are pleased to welcome Secretary of Education, uh, Miguel Cardona. Secretary Cardona, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be with you, Paige. Thanks for having me. Well, a lot to discuss, so let's get right into it. Um, and of course, first, let's talk about COVID and schools. And it's becoming clear the massive toll that the school shutdowns and the pandemic took on students. We have seen uh, both lagging test scores and we have seen, seen troubling statistics on the mental health of students. So Secretary, can you talk to us a little bit about how you plan to take on those challenges? And specifically, what are things that school districts need to be doing to make up that lost ground? Definitely. Um, you know, I'm pleased that uh, we went from 47% of our schools open when President Biden took office. We're at 100% now. And, um, you know, I think the message really is we need to maintain a level of urgency. You know, reopening schools is just a, the first step. Students missed a lot of instruction. Uh, students experienced a lot of trauma over the last couple of years. So our schools have to look different. Um, using ARP funds, but also what we know of how children learn. We have to make sure that when they come back to our schools, um, they're coming back to different schools, right? Schools that have more mental health supports, better after school programming, uh, tutoring, you know, summer programming, parent engagement processes that are better than ever before. You know, so while the, the influx of money is there, we must match that with an urgency to improve our schools. And, and that's what I'm seeing across the country, uh, you know, that level of urgency to make sure our kids are getting what they need. Um, academically, we know, I think it was McKinsey and, uh, and company reported a three to four month delay in uh, progress for students. And that's worse in communities of color. So we have our work cut out for us, but I'm confident with these educators and what I've seen over the last year that we're up for the challenge and, and our students deserve it. Let's talk for a minute about the impact of closures, um, specifically when you look at public schools compared to private and charter schools. And as a parent, I was able to see firsthand the frustrations of a lot of other parents who saw the public schools were offering only virtual learning. And then we saw, I think as a result of that, a huge surge of interest in private schools and charter schools. Um, how do you respond to those real frustrations that parents had with the public schools and then rebuild trust now in public schools? Yeah, and that's a good question. You know, in reopening schools, there was no, there was no playbook for that initially, right? And then when we saw cases go up and fear, uh, you know, and and sickness, uh, we recognized that you have to follow the mitigation strategies. But I I totally get the frustration from parents. They had to go back to work. They they uh, needed our schools to be operational, uh, but it was really critical that we made sure all of our schools, including our private and parochial, follow those mitigation strategies that kept our communities safe. And I think you know there there were more there are more students in public schools that uh, when the disruption happened it impacted families. But I think all schools uh, were required to follow uh, the safety and mitigation strategies that we know work. So you know. As we engage our parents in this process and we heard from them, uh, we did everything possible to try to make sure our schools were open. 
listen, from day one, I, I advocated for schools to be open. Um, however, safely, uh, we, we had too many cases of uh, family members and, and staff members getting sick, and we have to make sure that in order to do it, we have to do it responsibly. Well, and there's been this huge debate now as people look back to the pandemic and the way that schools responded, especially in that first year, 2020 to 2021. Um, what are some lessons that you think schools should take forward from that if we have another pandemic in the future? And also looking in retrospect, did schools make the right decision about going virtual only? I, I definitely think they did. And I'm talking now as a father um, and as an educator. Uh, and I, I remember having to make decisions in July of 2020 about how we reopen schools. Uh, but I also remember that at that time, we were also looking at death rates that were really high. Coming from Connecticut, being so close to New York, the epicenter, it was real. There was a lot of trauma around uh, people losing loved ones. And um, we know that over 140,000 students are returning to school without a parent or caregiver because they lost them to COVID. So, you know, hindsight's always 2020, but I do believe the decision to uh, make sure we knew what to do to keep our students and staff safe was the right one. Um, so, you know, I, I stand by that and it's always easier after to think about what you could have done. And I know that as we reopened, we emphasized mental health supports for our students. Uh, we used our schools and our school communities to promote, uh, you know, early vaccination, uh, testing, um, so those are some things that we did well. We engaged with families differently. Uh, so those are some of the things that I know that when we had to do it, we did it. And um, across the country, we're seeing the benefits of that. I'll say moving forward, we can't go back now just because our masks are off. We can't go back to the school systems that we had in March of 2020. We have to continue with the support of our students' mental health uh, and our educators' mental health. We have to do uh, more to make sure that we're closing whatever gaps were made worse. Our kids need additional reading, writing, math support, uh, tutors, after school programs. We have to do more now that uh, we have in most parts of the country, the pandemic and the spread under control. That doesn't mean we lose the sense of urgency around catching them up. You mentioned equity. Let's drill down into that because that's a real issue. As we as as we've already discussed, a lot of the public schools went virtual only, and of course, those disproportionately served students uh, of racial minorities or low income students. And then you saw a lot of wealthier parents pull their kids out, put them into the private or charter schools that were offering in person instruction. Um, so, are you concerned that that reality worsened the educational disparities between these students? You know, I think. What we need to do is really assess where our students are and what their needs are. Um, obviously, we are also looking at increasing Title I budgets to make sure that we're addressing some of those disparities that were made worse. But I also have to go back to, to the earlier question and, and even to this one. You know, there are some schools that, uh, because they have a good, you know, uh, funding, uh, have smaller class sizes where uh, social distancing was more possible, or they have huge campuses where students are spread out. And, you know, public schools in many cases uh, don't have as much funding. And we have classrooms of 25, 26 students. It's harder to do social distancing in a classroom like that um, than it is in a school where the class size might be small because of the design of the school and the funding sources of the school. So can't always compare uh, the two scenarios. And believe me, when I was uh, leading the state, I had conversations with uh, leaders of different schools who said, you know, I can't open because I only have nine students in a classroom and I could spread them out. 
So all the more reason to make sure that we're continuing to fund education uh, in our public schools and address some of those issues that were made worse during the pandemic. Well, I know you're facing so many challenges. Uh, another one we can talk about is teacher shortages. And we also the headlines of how teachers were resigning amid the pandemic challenges. I know this morning your agency announced a new initiative aimed at addressing that problem. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, we have challenges, but I really look at them as opportunities. I I think the, the disruption of education over the last couple of years really gives us an opportunity to build it better than it was before. Uh, and this is one of those examples where we've been talking about lifting the profession, about making sure we diversify the profession. Every state has that as, as one of their goals. Well, we've been talking about it. We put $65 million now toward grants that aim to support the efforts across our country to do this work. That could mean taking a paraeducator who's worked really hard uh, to serve her students or his students and now giving them the tools that they need to become teachers. Um, recruiting and, and coming up with creative strategies to recruit uh, professionals into the profession. Make no mistake, this is the best profession. Um, it, this pandemic really squeezed the pandemic, uh, squeezed the profession and and really required a lot of our educators and our education leaders, our principals, our superintendents. But this is the best profession and it's time that uh, we match our uh, funding with what we've been saying all along. We need to support our educators, give them the tools that they need to be successful. They bent over backwards for our kids and we have to make sure we're providing them the support that they need to want to stay in the profession and for folks who are not in the profession to consider teaching um, as a calling. Let's talk about charter schools for a minute because I know there's been a lot of talk about that and your agency recently proposed stricter regulations for charter schools. And I know Democrats have long supported charters, especially for kids who might be struggling academically. Uh, do you support charters for those types of kids? Uh, I'm not sure for those type of uh, students. I think all schools should be supporting students who are struggling. Um, I do believe charter schools provide uh, good options for families. And I believe that they're uh, in many cases designed to be very innovative around different approaches. And, uh, you know, in my experience as an educator for over 20 years, I've seen great examples of charter schools of meeting the needs of students as I have uh, traditional neighborhood public schools. So I guess the follow to that then is if that's the case, you know, and as we already mentioned, we've seen enrollment in charter schools growing the last two decades. How do you respond to criticism from charter school advocates who say these new rules would make it unnecessarily harder for these types of schools to open and operate? I don't think that to be the case. I think there's a lot of maybe misinformation out there and there's a, a feeling that uh, we're not supportive uh, of those schools. But if you look drill down, we're not asking for anything uh, different. We're proposing that, you know, partnerships do uh, help uh, when they have partnerships and we're asking for information that we would want um, in, in other applications. It's not a, a specific thing just for charter schools. Um, there should be no concerns about it because the information that we're asking for is nothing out of the ordinary. So do you, do you dispute the characterization that it would make harder for charter schools to open then? I do, and I want to make sure that they know that our agency is here to answer questions, and uh, we want to make sure that they're feeling supported in this process of applying. Uh, you know, for me, I love I love schools that work for children, and um, charters are no exception uh, to that. Um, but I also know that um, not only with charter schools, all schools, we need to make sure we know where the mon money is going and how those schools plan on serving the students uh, that they have. 
How would you describe the purpose of the regulations then for the charter schools? Is it to provide more accountability or how would you characterize that? To get more information about what they're thinking when uh, considering uh, uh, creating a charter school, um, to think about you know the community that they're going into, do they have information about that? What are their thoughts on how uh, they're partnering with other schools? But um, you know, again, I think sometimes misinformation is is leading to pe people feeling that uh, it's not uh, a process that's welcome. All right, turning to another hot topic, I know you've been a vocal critic of Florida's parental rights in education law passed last week, which contains right. a number of different provisions restricting primary school teachers from discussing sexual orientation and gender identity in the classroom. Uh, I know there are several different components to this law, so I actually wanted to take them in turn. Um, and uh, so when it comes to kids third grade or younger, it looks like this would ban talking about uh, these topics with kids uh, of that age. Um, and, you know, again, as a parent, when I think, do I want my eight-year-old kid, seven-year-old kid to, you know, be talking about these things in the classroom, you know, I might think twice about that as many parents might. But so how do you view that part of the law? And do you have any concerns with that part specifically? You know, I think it's very carefully written let let's 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 be honest let's be honest what it's doing is um forcing students who maybe come from homes where there are two moms or two dads um to feel ashamed of bringing up their home situation i i talk to teachers in florida who are gay who say i can't even put up a family picture in my classroom now because of fear of people are going to say things or or i'm going to be treated differently um the, the intention here is really, um, I, I really don't know the intention. I, I can't guess on the motive behind it, but what it's doing is creating division, creating creating a problem where one didn't exist. Um, I, there, I've been in education for, for two decades. Teachers are not teaching young children information the way it's being uh, exaggerated. However, students should feel that their family is, is just as legitimate as any other family. And children who are that young, who are, um, maybe I, I've had conversations with students who um, whose parents said at that age, I can sense that my child wanted to talk about certain things. Are we telling students not to be who they are or not to communicate when they're feeling a certain way? You know, as I said before, for a governor who hates masks, requiring students to mask who they are is unacceptable. I know that one student protesting the law spoke with my colleague Sydney Page earlier and said the bill has, quote, energized me to fight even harder for as long as it takes until things are better. Uh, wondering, are there any actions your agency can and might consider taking against this law? You know, what we want to do first and foremost is tell the students and families that we were behind them, we support them, uh, that they're they're fine, that they're that our schools are inclusive, uh, that they belong in our schools and they're accepted for who they are. I think that's the most important thing we can do at first. And then we're open to um, hearing from families. As I said, I've, I've spoken to families from Florida. Um, I visited Florida and talked to students and families there um, to hear their concerns. Um, if if at in the future there are complaints made uh, to the Office for Civil Rights, we'll take those uh, complaints very seriously. So just to be clear, who do you feel as though um, or who do you worry might be hurt because of this law? Because like, you know, as I noted at the outset, we're talking about kids of different ages. There's a, one regulation for younger kids, one for older kids. And then, of course, this also gives parents the ability to file lawsuits. So can you just kind of clarify for us who you think um, sure. might be hurt by this regulation? 
it's a broader message that it's sending. And listen, I talk to Florida parents. Um, I talk to parents who have children who are gay, who are young, who now their children feel like they don't belong there or that it's OK to be uh, picked on. I talk to teachers from Florida who say, why do I have to hide who I am or my family because of this? I talked to parents from Florida who said, you know, this is this is evil. This is targeting my children. Um, so these are from folks from Florida who are saying this. So when you know when you ask me who's being targeted, same Floridians who are uh, now going into our schools, whether they're students, teachers, or parents, are feeling affected by this. And um, as I said before, you know division or 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 discrimination has no place in our schools. Our schools should be safe places. We just got through the worst of a pandemic uh, and we worried about the physical health of our students only now to walk into schools and worry about their emotional health because of laws that are marginalizing a group that's already vulnerable. It's it's unacceptable. Well, let's talk for a minute about Title IX, and I know that your agency uh, is expected to soon release some rules around this issue. Uh, and of course, a hotly debated topic. I want to specifically ask you about the question of trans women in sports. And um, there's obviously a lot of lot of discussion of this and lots of thoughts. But what do you say to people who argue that it's not fair to cisgender mm -hmm. women who have to now compete against people? who are biologically male, such as in the Leah Thomas example? You know, I think every, not I think, I, I, I know every student in our schools deserves an opportunity to engage in all aspects of schooling, including extracurriculars, whether it's a club or athletics. Um, and I know there's been a lot of conversation about specific cases, but uh, you know, across the country, it's really important that we give all students an opportunity to engage and to participate in all that schools provide. Now, while I can't get into very much specifics because this is open and we do plan on sharing information in the coming month or months, um, I want to make sure I'm very clear, though, all students deserve an opportunity to participate in extracurricular activities in our schools. Well, Secretary Cardona, we are out of time, unfortunately, but thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Paige, that went quicker than I thought it, uh, it would. Um, I really enjoyed these conversations. And, and for as much as we have challenges ahead of us, I do feel the best days in education are ahead of us as we engage our families, engage our students, and really level up because our students deserve more now than ever before. Thanks for your time. Well, so much to talk about, and please do come back and join us again. Will do. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.